tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon from Radio Land. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for Blog Talk Radio's Backroom Politics. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former one-term senator. Uh, one-term senator. You know what? Let's start this again. He is the former one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man that we know as... Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, greetings down there in Florida. Admiral Ken? We seem to be having a little bit of an issue. Let's try uh let's try Sharmala. Sharmala, are you with me? Can I also be a one term senator? You can be a one term senator too. Let's try this again. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, she is the former legal attorney for the Hillary Clinton campaign for president in 2016, the great state of Ohio. She is now an attorney in the great city of New York. She is Sharmila Chari. Hello, Sharmila. Yes, one, two, three. Hello, Justin. Please refer and to me as Senator Sharmila from now on. No, we will not be referring to Senator <laughs> Sharmila. Uh, joining us from Florida, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is Admiral Ken. Hello, Justin. How are you? Fine. And joining us, as he does every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Washington insider and longtime Senate staffer. He is the man we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And we are go- we're going to get started, obviously, on uh, the big news that happened over the weekend. Uh uh, for some reason, if you have not heard, uh, but most of the world has, uh, longtime Arizona Republican Senator uh, John McCain passed away on Saturday uh, at the age of 81. Uh, Senator McCain, uh, it was announced on the Friday before that he would stop. He was being treated for brain cancer and was in fact ceasing all treatments. And then within 24 hours of that announcement, uh, Senator McCain had passed. Uh, He is um, obviously dearly missed here in Washington as well as in the great state of Arizona. Uh, But make no mistake about it is he is, uh, somebody that was referred to as a maverick. He was somebody who was very uh, self-deprecating at times. Admittedly, he claimed himself to be an imperfect individual. Uh, Navy veteran, 
uh, prisoner of war. Some even, uh, and I would agree, to cry him as an American hero. Uh, but his loss is being mourned here in the United States and worldwide. He was truly uh, a global political figure. Um, Alan Moore, you worked with uh, Senator McCain while you were working in the Senate. Uh, what, what are your memories of, of, of John McCain as, as the senator? And then I want to go to Ken and talk to him about his legacy as a Navy officer. Alan, let's start with you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was uh, I knew John McCain when I first got to the Senate in the late 70s. He was the naval liaison, uh, the newly installed naval liaison to the Senate, and uh, I was a new uh, legislative director, policy director for a new senator from Missouri, a man named John Danforth. And we met, and we were friendly, uh, and, but I wouldn't say we were close friends. He went off to two uh, terms in the House and then came to the Senate uh, in, uh, in 1987 uh, to replace uh, the venerable Barry Goldwater and uh, joined the Senate Commerce Committee, of which I was the staff director for Republicans at the time that he came back. So here was my, my old friend, John McCain, coming to the committee. Uh, he knew his way around the Senate, to a degree, but it's very different uh, when you're kind of working the Senate and being a senator. And and we spent time together, and I helped him learn the ropes around the Commerce Committee, and there were other people helping him too. And he had a staff that was knowledgeable and experienced. Um, and uh, uh, in the beginning, he uh, he was very careful to uh, to not rock the boat, if you will, to be deferential, to be diligent, uh, thoughtful. He was a fun guy, had a good sense of humor. He was a team player. Um, and, and that was the, uh, that was certainly my impression. The early, uh, the early John McCain, um, uh, at some point today, I'll, I want to share a, a, a whole different story. Uh, uh, it, it's a, it's a fun story that gives some insight into him. Over the years, uh, I mean, I left the Senate, I came back to the Senate, he was still there and was now a very senior senator um, from 2001 to 2005 when I came back. He was a committee chair, he traveled the world, he was known for some, some really important U.S. government initiatives. It should be said, dealing with re-recognizing Vietnam, um, the, the various military engagements that the U.S. was involved in um, and and uh, was known for holding people, uh, particularly in the military and, and in politics, to account. It would My hunch is that, that he probably along the way offended in important ways just about every other senator uh, in both parties. Um, he could be prickly and in, in your face. Um, he often, though, would comment on how he had made mistakes and and would would come back around and and uh, uh, and, and work again in the future with people that he had yelled at or offended. He, he was a remarkable guy, and what we're seeing now is the memories of the good John McCain, which was of which there was a lot of. There was a lot about the man that was really special um 
really committed not only as a patriot in the military and a five and a half year prisoner of war, but as a as a senator who wanted to do the right thing, wanted to work across the aisle, worked with Democrats, um, uh, worked with different factions within the Republican Party. Um, and and some of those things infuriated people. And and uh, he was much beloved by the press when he ran for president in 2000 uh, and lost the nomination to uh, to George Bush, um, George W. Bush, before gaining the nomination eight years later against Obama. His campaign didn't have a lot of money, and he spent an yeah. he, he basically had and on it, his his bus the press. Right, and I want to get I want to get to that I want to get to that in a little bit I want to get to that in a little bit, Alan, um, because there's a lot obviously to talk about when we talk about Senator McCain. Uh, Admiral Ken, you know, we we know John McCain as the senior senator from Arizona. Um, We know him as uh, the son of admirals. Uh, John McCain. Also was a, uh, I mean, was a prisoner of war during Vietnam after being shot down. But he was a naval aviator, a graduate uh, of the class of 1958 from the Naval Academy. How do you view John McCain as a fellow naval officer? What was his career like? So, uh, plebe summer um, at the academy, which is our uh, Four, almost four-month-long uh, uh, boot camp. Um, when the classes started talking about um, uh, code of uh, code of conduct of uh, military personnel, uh, should they be captured? Three names were repeated over and over and over again: Jim Stockdale, Jeremiah Denton, and John McCain. And so I've grown up um, in the shadow. Of, of, of those of those officers and because and because McCain was in Washington DC uh, and in, because I knew people that worked for him directly uh, his his shadow loomed over um, over me um, more so than I'd say the, uh, the, 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 the the two other gentlemen. John McCain's reputation in the Navy uh, had had two parts part a, uh, uh, which which defined who he was from the time he entered, to the, entered the academy until the days he was shot down and uh, sent to the Hanoi Hilton and his time after that. Uh, prior to that, he had a reputation for being a wild man. Um, he uh, uh, never uh, met a, a liquor that uh, he didn't like or a woman that he didn't try and date. Th- this was this was how he was known when he was a J.O., um, and for other JOs, you know, uh, you know, he, he he cut a pretty wide swath, and a good number of people tried to follow in those footsteps. Uh, and and Ken, when you Ken, when you say the word JO, you mean junior officer. Junior officer, sorry, thank you, junior officer. Right. Uh, m- myself being being one one of those from time to time, and then there's the then there's then there's the John McCain after he came back from from uh, from uh, being a prisoner of war. This is a guy. Who, when the the, the the Viet Cong found out that his father was a senior Navy admiral, they offered to let him go, but refused to come back unless his, refused to go and come home unless his comrades could come with him. The beatings were bad before then, but they got a whole lot worse after that. 
And this is when the guy basically, he learned that he wasn't his own man in his words. He wasn't his own man anymore. And that is the John McCain that most officers in the Navy try to emulate. That you, you that uniform that you're wearing doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your country because that's the way that McCain looked at things. Uh, his, his last presidential campaign had the Monica country first. Uh, if you look at my coins, it says the same thing. This is who John McCain was to me, and um, on, 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 and I will say that President Candidate Trump lost me the day he basically said John McCain wasn't a hero. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about that later on the we'll show. We'll talk about that. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, Sharmila, let when we when we talk about John McCain, uh, John McCain was that rare old school breed, particularly in recent times where he demonstrated he could be partisan but could demonstrate civility in his discourse. Uh, you know, we go back to the uh, 2008 election where he was in a town hall forum and a lady accused uh, Barack Obama of being a Muslim, and he basically grabbed the mic from her hand and said, no, ma'am, that is not true. Uh, he is a good man, a uh, good Christian man basically stood up for him. Is, is that something that differentiated John McCain from the rest of the political establishment that we're seeing in D.C.? I think certainly when you look at the crop of candidates who are running now or who ran in 2010, it certainly distinguishes him. It seems almost unfathomable, unfathomable now for a candidate for office to publicly defend their um, – their opponent and to to offer kind words about them, you know, in any moment before a concession speech. So I think you're right. You know, you saw part of the reason that I think people are truly mourning John McCain is that they see that he is, you know, one of the last of a breed of bipartisans and people who were not only able to work across the aisle, but have genuine friendships across the aisle and show the American people, emulate to the American people that Partisanship isn't everything, that you know, people can transcend partisanship, that friendships and families can transcend partisanship, and that just because you're on the opposite side of the political aisle from someone doesn't mean that you can't work with them, you can't respect them, and you can't like them. So I think that you know, if, if our legislators are wise, they will look to his example and try to emulate it. But I worry in this age of increasing partisanship, that people are not going to take the lesson from John McCain and are instead going to run the other way. Alan Moore, when we, when we think of John McCain, the Senator, uh, we obviously go straight to McCain Feingold. Uh, is, is that the real legislative legacy that, that John McCain leaves behind? Or is there, is there something deeper that, that doesn't really get brought out? in discussions with the general electorate? Well, since most of, much of McCain-Feingold has been tossed, um, one would hope that's not, not his major legacy. Um, well, that's a good uh, point. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think he tried hard, uh, found a partner, and, and uh, uh, that, law, that law was, was, uh, was doomed. Um, but he... I think that, that the comments that 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 Ken and Sharmila made um and that I tried to make 
speak more to to his legacy. We don't think about him in a in a particular bill. Maybe if there's one issue that that stands out, it's the work that he and uh, and John Kerry, uh, you know, the prisoner of war and the anti-war activist who came together in the Senate to reestablish to, to take the, the initiative to reestablish diplomatic relations with uh, with Vietnam. Um, and and it's pretty remarkable that uh, uh, that in a war that took more than fifty thousand American lives and God knows hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese lives, um, two people who fought in it and played significant roles thereafter, joined together to bring the U.S.-Vietnam relationship into modern times. That, that, was, that was quite something, but, but, but the fact that they could come together and take the lead, in effect, made it possible for anyone else who was hesitant um, to to get on board. No one had the credibility of those two across the spectrum. You know, this anti-war activist and this tortured prisoner of war. Um, and it's like it, 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 it covered the entire spectrum of America uh, uh, on, on Vietnam. So for me, that was their, that was sort of his singular accomplishment in addition, though, to these moments that, that we've all seen repeated on, on television again and again of showing grace, of showing fundamental honesty and integrity. Um, and and uh, uh, so it was, it, it was not, it, it, as I say, you don't think about McCain as a, w- with a piece of legislation in mind, but but more uh, as an idea, and and we were talking. There was a reference to Trump, and I know we're going to talk more about it. But in an odd way, the ugliness that this president showed not in the last couple of days, but during the campaign, um, and and in the Senate, uh, and, and and while he served, that has <laughs> elevated. John McCain in the minds of uh, most Democrats, yeah. virtually none of whom voted for, virtually none of whom voted for him in 2008. They love him now, and the press, who always kind of right. loved him because he was always so accessible. So, in, an, in, in, a, in a curious, odd, strange way, unique to America, President Trump's smallness right. has helped enlarge our. Uh, our view of and our memory of John McCain, not what the president was seeking to achieve, but, uh, uh, but it, it's just one of those right. bizarre ironies. Ad- uh, unique right. Admiral, it's, it's, Admiral, Ken, Admiral Ken, let me go to you. You know, the, the, Alan brings up a, a, a very strange point, though, but one of the things that we've heard, particularly during the Trump presidency, is uh, a general pushback from the Trump base Republicans on John McCain. Uh, John McCain, 
they 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 oh they use the thumbs down picture of him walking into the Senate late at night regarding the Obamacare bill and and voting thumbs down. Uh, that is a battle cry for a lot of Trump or Republicans. Uh, it, it got to the point where towards the end of his tenure on day-to-day work in the Senate that he was almost vilified as a Republican, and many called him a, a rhino, a Republican in name only, or a fake Republican. Was John McCain a real Republican senator from Arizona. He he was he was a real Republican in the spirit of of uh, of, of uh, Ronald Reagan, in the same kind of spirit of being a Republican that I am, and based on the words that I've exchanged with you, that I believe that you are. Um, John McCain uh, believed in civility, uh, much like Ronald Reagan was willing to step across the aisle and foster a friendship with Tip O'Neill. Sure. During the course of the day, they may go at each other, but in the evening, in the in the late hours, these men had conversations. They genuinely liked each other. Um, your comment with regard to Trump supporters almost vilifying Trump's uh, uh, vilifying John McCain is right on point. I, I went back uh, to my old uh, haunts in the Dallas area a few weeks ago, and found myself having a conversation with the, one of the most ardent of the Trump supporters that I knew and the conversation went well into about two or three o'clock in the morning. And the only reason that it went that long is because he had the poor judgment to say something negative to me about John McCain. And I won't, I won't, I won't tell you what I said because that would require five minutes with sailor Ken. But after I pulled myself off the ceiling um, and he, and I asked him, you know, so what is your point? And he, he very, very, quickly uh, mentioned the thumbs down on the uh, the dissolution of Obamacare. And I asked him, why do you think he did that? And he goes, because he's, he's, he's a rhino. He's not really a Republican. I said, did it ever dawn on you that there's millions of people that are dependent on this now? And the moniker from the Republican Party was repeal and replace. All of a sudden, it just got done with repeal, and there was no replace. And he was going to leave a bunch of sick people, people just like him now, out in the wind without any kind of uh, coverage. And you know what? The thing that troubled me more about that conversation is that my friend got it, but he didn't care. And I think that, you know, that John McCain is truly, John McCain is truly a, a real Republican in, the, in the, uh, the light of Reagan. But you know what? I firmly believe that Ronald Reagan's politics today would not be acceptable to the Republican Party that, that this has evolved into. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Hey, Sharma, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about John McCain, the the presidential candidate. Uh, What made John McCain so successful as the senator from Arizona and not make him attractive as president of the United States? Well, I think it was exactly what we were talking about before, which was his bipartisanship and his willingness to to buck the establishment, to buck his own party, and to not do what you know everyone just expected him to do, but to follow his own conscience and to break with, you know, and generally, typically, to break with the leadership of his party or to break with the positions of his party when he when his conscience dictated that he couldn't support their agenda. So I think you saw that in 2000, he 
achieved a bit of momentum as a palatable centrist Republican alternative to George W. Bush. Uh, that's why he won the New Hampshire primary when no one expected him to. And then, you know, he faced that incredibly ugly smear campaign in South Carolina and, you know, lost that primary handily and that sort of ended his presidential ambitions. But you saw at that point in 2000, right after Bill Clinton, there was an appetite in the American public for a more centrist, moderate Republican and someone who wouldn't just stick to the party line whenever push came to shove. People wanted that. However, by 2008, you saw that the party had shifted pretty significantly. You know, the Tea Party, that movement had really started to to make a lot of headway. And so now all of a sudden, the fact that John McCain defied Republican orthodoxy and kind of wasn't Republican enough was a huge mark against him. And so you saw in that you saw in that race that he had to sort of run to the right and, you know, and, and he was dealt a, a bad deck of cards, right? Because George W. Bush was incredibly unpopular, but John McCain still had to sort of make a big shift rightwards in order to win the primary vote. And then kind of swing back more to the center in the general election to make his case against Barack Obama and voters did not find that genuine. And then you add in the fact that he picked Sarah Palin as his running mate and you know it it led to this sort of again maverick bold moves that he was known for ended up really working against him unfortunately in both of these elections. You know it's funny Alan Moore speaking of that 2008 election we look at the uh, writings that he did in the last book he wrote before his passing, The Restless Wave. He talks about the idea of uh, having as his running mate the then senator uh, from Connecticut, Joe Lieberman, a Democrat and a Jew, uh, bring him on as his running mate, which would have broken all molds as far as traditional Republican presidential runs go. Was John McCain just too forward-thinking to ever be a Republican president, or is there something else we're missing? Well, (laughs) yeah, I I wouldn't say too Um, (laughs) forward-thinking. It wasn't as though Joe Lieberman hadn't been noticed before. Al Gore noticed him. Um, and they were a ticket. Uh, by the time McCain was the candidate uh, in 2008, Joe Lieberman was no longer a Democrat. He was an independent. He had lost a, a primary in Correct. Connecticut right. in, in order to be reelected. He ran as an independent. He caught right. with the Democrats. But by then, he was a he was a named uh, independent. But right. But everybody the, everybody the, knew the thing, that thing, the, everybody the knew thing that about he was. The, a long-serving Democrat, though. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He was on the ticket with Gore. I, I, it, it was. It would have been very unconventional. Here, here was the problem that John McCain faced. Um, one, he 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 was following, an at that time, very unpopular Republican uh, uh, George W. Bush, and the, the unpopularity grew out of three things. One. We get tired of presidents after two terms, so it's rare that we have somebody who everyone is thrilled with. But much, much bigger than that were what was going on in the economy. We had had the massive hit and dislocation and 
and, uh, and, and recession of late 2007, all of 2008, and then all 2009, that f- made it those two things, following George Bush, and, and I didn't even mention the, 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 the wars that were begun post-9-11 by uh, President Bush and by the, by the, by the country, but that, that were attributed to, to him. Um, and he certainly has supported them and prosecuted them. But it was virtually impossible to see how any Republican was going to win that election. Didn't matter who the candidate was. It happened to be it happened to be McCain. But he was looking when he when he was rounding out the ticket. So who, how do I get some enthusiasm? How do I what do, who do I put on this ticket that will be bold and different and exciting and the he and his team did let's all acknowledge as they certainly have they did a pair a very poor job of vetting sarah palin they selected her initially there was an enormous amount of enthusiasm and excitement by some of the <laughs> some of the people that are are now ascendant in the Republican Party, but who at that time were turned off, didn't particularly like McCain, um, were nervous about what was happening in the economy because they were all getting hit. Um, and then well, me, over time, Alan, not too much time, people got turned off. Alan, let me ask this question. Let me ask this question. If the economic crisis of 2008 never happens, if there's not an economic meltdown, does John McCain stand a chance of winning the presidency? Sure. I don't know that he would have won. There were a lot of issues about his temperament. As I said at the very beginning, he's pissed off every politician, every other U.S. senator uh, that, that he ever served with. He also had an enormous amount of affection from many of them, if not, if, if not most. Um, and, and he would he would be erratic. He would he would he would say uh, intemperate things at at unfortunate times. He he was not Ronald Reagan in that regard. Um, and and uh, and so when people are looking at a guy who's kind of unpredictable and erratic and can get ugly and nasty, um, even though he can he can surprise you with with uh, uh, with principle and with courage. Um, and not to mention a compelling life story. Um, there, there was, I think, a lot of people, uh, including Republicans, uh, and I don't mean the, the 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 far over angry Republicans, but there were a good number of of moderate, if you will, longtime Republicans who felt very uncomfortable with John McCain. It's sort of how they had perceived him evolving in the years, and then when he picked Sarah Palin, it was like, "Hey, I'm I'm going right. to vote for Obama." Um, right. So, right. having said, but but the economy was the backdrop uh, right. to, uh, to 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 all of that, and and the disenchantment at that point with uh, the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and how we got into them, and where we were at the time, and what the future held, and and it was a really, really bad uh, 
time for right for uh, for a Republican. You take away right. the economic stuff though, and and then um, uh, John McCain or anybody else has got a different kind of a chance. Right. Uh, John McCain doesn't pick Sarah Palin if the economy isn't in the toilet because he doesn't he doesn't have to go for the big dramatic high risk possible high gain move that Sarah Palin was. Um, so uh, long term, it, you know, it's so hard to 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 answer a question like that because because that dominated the national scene Fair in enough. 2008. Fair enough. Hey, um, around the horn, uh, starting with you, Sharmila, uh, from here on in the history books, how do they view, how do the history books look at Senator John McCain? They'll see him as a longtime public servant, a war hero, and someone who crossed party lines to do his best for America. Admiral Ken. Thanks to the Trump presidency, I agree completely with Sharmila. I think absent Donald Trump, um, I don't know if the lionization, almost lionization that I've seen by a lot of the news media would have taken place um, uh, as we've seen it. Uh, I, again, I have a lot of a lot of uh, affection for Don, uh, John McCain, and um, and his passing uh, was not did not come to this house without without there being some tears shed. But uh, I think Donald Trump has made it easy. For a lot of people to see what a great man uh, John McCain was. Alan Moore, real quick. I agree. I I, I think Ken nailed it. Um, uh, he was a special guy, but he's elevated now. Um, uh, curiously and oddly, uh, thanks to uh, the ugliness uh, of our president. Right. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Speaking of that ugliness, we're going to talk about that and the other problems facing the Trump White House uh, in a really bad week that ended and started off really, really tough. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here live on Blog Talk Radio. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is backroom politics. Live from Washington, D.C., your nation's capital, with the exception of Admiral Ken joining us from Palm City, Florida, and Sharmila Chari joining us from New York City. Hey, um, we've got uh, a lot to talk about, obviously, on this show, but we do want to hit on the uh, situation at the White House that has just left a lot of people shaking their head. Bottom line is, uh, once the announcement of the death of Senator McCain came through, there was a noticeable silence coming from the White House, even lasting into Sunday. What we got was a tweet from the president which basically said thoughts and prayers to the McCain family, not once mentioning, mentioning the uh, public service that was given by Senator McCain. It then got a little weird after flags were uh, lowered to half staff at the White House and at federal buildings globally, it was noticed Monday morning that the flags had returned to full staff at the White House. They were still flying at half-mast at the U.S. Capitol and at other federal buildings around the world, but noticeably different, the White House. It became a very, very awkward situation for the president as he was asked multiple times in various press sprays in the White House if he had any comments and he just refused to comment. This whole event was, was absolutely unnecessary. And it finally closed out when at around four o'clock yesterday afternoon, the president issued a decree saying that all flags will be left at half mast until Senator McCain's internment, which for the record will be Friday at the U.S. Naval Academy Cemetery in Annapolis, Sunday. Maryland. Sunday. Or Sunday, rather. I'm I sorry, Sunday. Sunday. Friday, Friday is lying in state at the uh, U.S. Capitol. Um, so Sunday, where he will be interned. So all flags will remain at half-mass until Sunday. It took the pressure of veteran services organizations, including the American Legion and the Veterans of Foreign Wars, to absolutely throw the gauntlet down on the president to almost force his hand to do something that was a layup politically. Let me go, Admiral, let me go to you. First of all, the pettiness of this, as a naval officer mourning the loss of another naval officer, regardless of the fact that it was Senator John McCain, the protocols involved in this were just, horribly botched by the White House and, and specifically the president. So um, I guess the first thing that I would say is that I found myself not at all surprised yesterday. I was disappointed, but not surprised. Secondly, when you think about some of the um, the the commentary the president has had about NFL football players uh, dishonoring military with their kneeling protests, one has to stop and use both hands to scratch your head. 
Uh, as a vet, I got to tell you, I thought yesterday was just completely disgusting. And but again, not surprising. I think General General Michael Hayden um, said it best. Uh, he put up a tweet with the picture of the White House before, after, and then a, and after again. And it basically said the next time the president starts talking about dishonoring the troops, you need to keep this in mind. And, it took, and I think it's – one last thing. One last thing. I think it's awfully sad that it took um, a, uh, a note from the, uh, the head of the, uh, the American Legion – to the president to tell him to quit being a butt for uh, for five minutes and do his job. Sharmila, looking at this, the Democrats have you know got to look at this and saying, how are we not just going to clean the table in 2018 with this? This was a layup that he everything he's touching is turning to crap. I mean, as our colleague Ken Lipner would say, never underestimate the ability of the Democratic Party to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. There's still a long time between now and November, and every 48 hours, the president creates a new controversy or, you know, touts a new triumph. So, so you know, for loyal, loyal resistance voters, you know, those who are staunchly anti-Trump, his, you know, incredibly petty behavior is not going to move the needle any more than it already has been moved, right? They're already against him. This is not going to make a difference. For those independent voters, you know, the people that he needs to retain, I don't know how persuasive this behavior is, right? The president is already known for his lack of class and dignity. The fact that he committed another act that shows his lack of class and dignity I don't think is going to shock or persuade anyone to vote against him who's not already predisposed against him. So, yeah. Go ahead, Charma. No, I was going to say that I think that there's, you know, the impact of perhaps this newly announced uh, trade trade agreement with Mexico or, or, you know, what happens with the future of um, any sort of, you know, uh, Dream Act or immigration reform efforts or any additional movements that he makes on repealing health care. Those, I think, are going to be a lot more persuasive to to middle-of-the-road voters than anything to do, unfortunately, with Senator McCain. Alan Moore, do you agree? So <laughs> here's my take on it. I, I align myself again with, uh, uh, with Ken. Last week, uh, which has lingered, uh, has been this total hell week, worst ever week for uh, for the president. But last Tuesday, we were talking about the double hit of the Manafort convictions and the Cohen plea deal. Um, and a day later, we're hearing that uh, that there's also been immunity granted to a couple of people, one of whom is this man named David Pecker, who... Uh, runs the company that owns the National Enquirer. Right. Now, I mention David Pecker because, in a way, it reminds me of it, – it, it, it brings up, not to get too, too crude here, of the president. Here he is. He has a chance for this diversion. Oh, my gosh. 
not only has John McCain died and there's a no-brainer softball opportunity to just show a hint, a touch of class, and the economy is breaking some new records. So what does the president do? Well, remember David Pecker? The president steps on his own and misses this chance to show some grace towards John McCain and call attention to how great the economy is doing, thank his lucky stars that he's got a slight reprieve in talking about Manafort, Cohen, Stormy Daniels, uh, Karen McDougal, and so on. He steps on his own David Pecker, if you'll excuse the alliteration here, and blows the opportunity, looks small still again, and and we talk about, yeah, he's got a following, but what he's, he, he did really well with, with white suburban college-educated women, surprisingly well. He is getting stomped with that group today. It's not the only group that, he's, that, that, he, is, that he is losing, but with several small gestures, he is blowing a, an extraordinary bit of good fortune in general and opportunity for 2018 and 2020 and just doing untold regular damage. This one was so bad that we immediately got reports from the White House that he ignored the recommendation of various senior people to put out a gracious comment about John McCain and then why did we read about that? Because these people are distancing themselves from his crude, selfish, stubborn, narcissistic behavior. Um, and then the flag business. Oh my God, these are no-brainers, as Ken says. These are this is this is not rocket science. This is hey, I can I can show a, a touch of class. His wife spoke out. His daughter spoke out. 15 or 16 senior members of his administration all spoke out. The president was dragged kicking and screaming into a, you know, a little something that he said, a day late and a dollar short. Right. Um, will and it make a difference? And I then don't know. The stuff is that, additive. And then on top yeah, of that, he, he has the temerity to blame the fact that only bad news shows up for him when people Google Trump and news. Yeah, yeah I was just uh, going to bring that up. I was oh literally going to bring that up. I mean, Google, today, literally less than three hours ago, President Trump Google, I'm, I'm sorry, tweets, quote, Google search results for Trump news shows only the viewing reporting of fake news media. In other words, they have it rigged for me and others, so that almost all stories and news is bad. I mean, let's, I mean, Sharmila, this is a special kind of petulance, petulance, pettiness. I mean, to, to really suggest that a gazillion dollar algorithm has purposely been uh, put in place to 
only show bad median results, which, by the way, Google tweeted back at Donald Trump. We'll talk about that later. But, uh, Sharma, at what point does America just get tired? I mean, I guess the bigger question is, at what point does America in general get tired of this petulant baby? And at the same time, can Trump survive with just his 38% approval or 40% approval rating? Well, Justin, I should ask you that question. The president's approval rating with the Republicans is 87%. He has the highest own party approval rating of any president, except for George W. Bush, immediately after September 11th. That's crazy. The president has actually, through his relentless pettiness and media attacks, done a pretty good job of undermining a lot of voters' confidence in our institutions. And, you know, for example, the Mueller investigation and the Department of Justice. So I think that it's, you know, America's not tired of him yet, which is a scary thing. But like I said before, the people who have seen his behavior and are disgusted by it are continuing to be disgusted by it. The people who have seen his behavior and are nonplussed or sort of are not um, are not phased by it are going to continue to not be phased by it because they support him for different reasons. They support him because, you know, either they like what he stands for or they like that he riles up liberals or they like that he shakes up the system. There is some underlying reason that we are not understanding that transcends kind of the common bounds of decency and character that we have traditionally wanted and sought out in our presidents. That all of those past criteria don't apply to Donald Trump. So I think that until, you know, both Democrats and kind of more center-minded, never-Trump Republicans figure out what that appeal is, we're going to be spinning our wheels over this. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And Alan Moore, maybe you can tell me, as a Republican, uh, how is – what are we missing as far as, as Sharmila pointed out, the 82 to 85% approval rating in the Republican Party, but only manages to maintain a low 40s, high 30s general approval rating. What are we missing in that, in those numbers, rather? Well, one thing is that when you get past the still willing to call themselves Republicans, um, he, he doesn't have a, a lot of approval. So his, his numbers with independents and, and, uh, and Democrats are exceedingly low, particularly Democrats, but even, even independents, it's, uh, it's, it's under 20%. Um, and, and it wasn't always so. This is the problem for Republicans um, uh, in the upcoming election. Um, there are still, you know, people like me, you know, I'm just a Republican on sabbatical. There are other Republicans who have left the party. And 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 uh, become independents. So um, you know, that 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 number of Republicans, I think, has shrunk a bit. How, having said that, and these polls are always a challenge because there are a lot of Republicans who like, who basically like Trump because they like what's happened with the economy. They like that he's talking tough. Some of them agree on immigration. Some of them agree on abortion. Um, there's a whole, as we know, uh, uh, racist. Um, uh, contingent who uh, basically uh, 
find uh, uh, find an appeal in a uh, in in the in the the racist talk and action of, of this president. It's it's hard to totally compartmentalize and come up with one answer. There are four or five different groups that still like this president, and then there is the economy. And as as Bill Clinton's people used to say, it's the economy, stupid. If the economy is doing well, it's tough to dislodge the, those in power. And if the economy sucks, it's tough to survive if you're the party in power. And, and America's history shows that. So there's there's a lot going on out there. And I think that we, we, we have to acknowledge how complicated it is and not just say, well, Amer- the Republicans are just a bunch of uh, – of, of hate-filled Neanderthals. That's why they like Trump. It's not that that there there are there's hate out there. No question about that. But there are also other people who who find uh, this president superior on one of these other issues. Oh, and I left out guns. So you know, there's there's a bunch of groups that that find that 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 find uh, you know sort of a lot of one-issue voters or mostly one-issue voters who say, I can put up with the nonsense. I wish he wouldn't tweet as much, but I love what he's doing on immigration. I love what he's doing on guns. I love his, his, his pro-life position. So it, it's, uh, it's complicated. Having said that, oh, my God, is there ever an opportunity for the Democrats, both in November and two years from now, whoever runs, as you know, I tend to think President Trump will not be a candidate in 2020, but – you know that'll remain to be seen. Um, and I can't tell you why. It'll be one of half a dozen different reasons. But maybe it's just wishful thinking. I don't know. I just I just have this sense that that it won't be Trump um, for the Republicans in 2020. But you know, but the um, you know it it it's uh, uh, there's a lack of enthusiasm among these right. Republicans, and there's a surge of enthusiasm. Um, We'll see if it survives well, in me, November. We'll see what happens in the right. country and in the world between now and 2020 for whoever is on the on on either or both tickets. Right, Admiral Ken, you had a thought. The group, the group that that I guess that aligns itself, um, and this is to answer Charmless' question back to us. The group that aligns itself to the Republican Party um, that has stayed with President Trump um, the longest, the most, and the most fervently. That surprised me are the evangelicals. Um, I, I grew up in the in the in the in the, in the church in the South. Um, I still go. Um, I need to because I got a lot of, lot of lot of things I need forgiveness for. But um, the the thing that I don't understand is just just this this undying, um, unflinching support. I mean, you know, here's a man. Who you know who who snuck a a porn star into his house while his his wife was was nursing their newborn and they're still standing by this guy. I don't understand it. And to Alan's point, I think that there are a great many Republicans like he and I that are on sabbatical and a good good number of others that have completely left the party. Um, and what you've got are. The, 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 the people that are left over that really won just like what they're hearing, uh, where the, the ends justify the means and uh and will stick by him unless and until something traumatic happens. 
i.e. the economy turns south or we get ourselves into a fight and uh, we, 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 we lose. You know, Sharmila, it's, it's amazing to me, and, and I'm a Republican, that we have to sit here as, you know, the three of us, Admiral Ken, myself, and Alan as Republicans in exile, we've been on the record for years on this show saying that we're not fans of Donald Trump and he hasn't really lit the world on fire with us as president either. It it, it, it literally is a conundrum in my head that this guy literally has done a Jedi mind trick on the Republican party and has them just standing for stuff that we would never stand for. I mean, I literally watched a clip from the Christian Broadcasting Network's big news show, The 700 Club, where the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, one of the largest congregations in the country, literally told the rest of the Christian community, you know what, as long as he stands for pro-life, as long as he won't put in liberal justices on the court, we will stand by him as, as evangelical Christians. That, that, that to me just said, you know what? You just sold your soul to Satan. You literally did kids. That's what I don't get. The hypocrisy of the evangelicals, the ludicrous lemming like following of the party down this primrose path. This is not, something that is sustainable and as and jeff flake and alan i'd like your take on this when jeff flake says that we are one step away from going the way of the Whig party i tend to believe him alan well oh i was going to say justin just oh, to I'm cut sorry, it sure alan. Ahead first and alan Another remarkable phenomenon that we that happened today that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet is the fact that evangelicals are now turning on Jeff Sessions, who was previously, you know, in the halcyon days before Donald Trump, one of their strongest advocates for the last 25 years. That is remarkable. Alan Moore. So. We're. We're never going to figure this out, obviously. I, I, when, I, when, I, when I watch Evangelicals, which is gets your head scratching, it is, it, it is a reminder of the importance of the abortion issue. And, and there is a bright red line between where this president is today. He wasn't always there. He wasn't always a Republican, of course, um, uh, but there's a there's a bright red line, and that issue is an enormously powerful issue in many parts of the country and with many evangelicals, and we 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 mention that from time to time, and it's important uh, not to forget that the Supreme Court, the when when a when a evangelical pre preacher talks about Supreme Court justices and that being important, that has to do with the other social issues that many evangelicals are still in a different place 
than the momentum in the country, principally gay marriage um, and LGBTQ rights um, uh, around which um, there are still powerful feelings and a, and a lot of resentment that uh, that, uh, that that this court gave rights that it did not have the power to give, gave rights that should have been the power of a legislature. Um, and those feelings run powerful and deep, and people look past these sins of ugliness, of stupidity, of exaggeration, of lies, um, and... Uh, I, I I can't explain it. And most of the, you know, the the most powerful feelings shared by those with those views are not are not in Washington D.C. They're not even on the coasts. Although some of the people I went to high school with in Southern California believe that uh, that President Trump can do no wrong, um, and. And it's like their minds are made up. Don't confuse them with facts. They don't care about facts. And they're, they have their own facts. They have their alternate facts. Or truth isn't truth. I mean, um, we, we laugh at those comments that are made by people close to the president, including his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. And there's a huge following out there that says, yeah, Rudy, you, you tell him. We know what you're talking about. Um, Truth or something else. There's yesterday afternoon. Yesterday yeah, afternoon. Yeah, Yesterday afternoon, I I I found myself doing something I've never done before. I was literally screaming obscenities at the TV, screaming because I let myself get lured into that space that no sane or rational person or person of consequence, at least in their own mind, should get lured into. I got to the point where I got there because someone basically said, one of the congressmen, I can't remember his name, said that the reason that the president was behaving the way he was, he tried to blame it on, on John McCain. And, and I, 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 I lost it. I really did. And, and that's probably one of the main reasons I ended my, my Twitter account months ago. Um, yeah. This, 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 this state that we're in right now um, was an anathema to people like John McCain. This is not who we are as a people. This is not the reason that I became a Republican. You cannot believe the amount of abuse I've taken from other black people about my open openness about being a Republican in the last 30 years, only to have it come back at me the way that it has since the days of Donald Trump. It's awful. Right. This is not who we are, and, I, and what, 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 what frightens me is that I don't know if we can find our way back. That's the part that really frightens me. Right, and by, and by the way, just, just so you know, quote of the day yesterday, when Trump says, and I quote, I find comfort in the power of prayer. That man hasn't prayed, that man hasn't prayed since he's seen Washington, D.C. Come on. I mean, good God. This is just out of control. Um, anyway, enough about that. We're going to talk about another awkward situation. Uh, <laughs> if you didn't see 
the the live video feed of President Trump trying to get the president of Mexico on a speakerphone, epic. Google it. It's worth it every minute. But we are going to talk about the Mexican trade deal later on in the show. When we come back, though, it's Tuesday, which means that there are two key primaries, which happens to touch into the whole McCain situation. There are two key primaries going on this this day, the primary in Florida and the primary in Arizona. We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics, live from Washington, D.C. and places elsewhere. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Admiral Ken Carradine, the Honorable Alan Moore, Sharmal Achari, and I'm your host, moderator Justin Russell. Uh, somewhere in spirit is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Somewhere between California and Cape Cod she is. Where she's at, we don't know. She doesn't check in with us, but we wish her safe travels. Hey, uh, it's Tuesday, which means somebody's voting somewhere. And in this case, the big primaries to watch are key primaries in both the great sunshine state of Florida, down your neck of the woods, Ken, and the, uh, the state of Arizona 
uh, out west, which is still mourning the loss of one of its favorite sons, uh, Senator John McCain. Let's start with Arizona, because there's some unique races going on there. The, the, the one I guess everybody's kind of really looking at, uh, Alan Moore, is this race to replace uh, Jeff Flick, probably Donald Trump's biggest uh, antagonist in the U.S. Senate, if not in the party. Three-way race, Alan Moore. You've got uh, the convicted felon, now pardoned felon, uh, former Maricopa County Sheriff, Joe Arpaio, do we actually give him any sort of a chance of winning that? Uh, so I don't, um, you know, so that means like one in a thousand range. Um, he, they're, 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 he's worn out his welcome in Arizona. I mean, he's got a, he's got a narrow following. Not only is, is he a convicted felon, which bothers some people, um, he's just an ugly person and he's old. Um, and he doesn't make sense. He's he's uh, he's not a good statewide candidate. So he's he's more a, a, a spoiler at this point, um, and uh, and a reminder of the embarrassment uh, to the president of his uh, his not just a pardon but a very premature pardon. Um, right. And uh, and uh, he's going to be a reminder later that. Oh yeah, that's that's uh, pre- that's the president's uh, preferred candidate, the guy who came in a distant third. Right. Um, so I don't see it happening, but you know, I didn't haven't seen a lot of things happen that happen. <laughs> we never thought Donald so, Trump would be president either. That would that who's would, that all, would be the big one to and, start with. Who's also yeah. old and says things that doesn't make sense. Yeah, true, but, true. Uh, so basically, it comes down to the Republican race is pretty much between. Uh, hardline Republican conservative uh, uh, Kelly Ward uh, versus the uh, the state representative Martha McSally, who is not only a former Air Force pilot uh, but has really been a rising star in the establishment. Alan Moore, let me stay with you on this one. It seems odd, though, that Martha McSally, who originally, when she first ran for office, would distance herself from Trump, is now embracing Trump. Has Martha McSally sold herself out? No, she's trying. She's trying to win an election. If 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 you if you look back at John McCain in 2010, for example, after his failed. Uh, uh, presidential bid, uh, there was a question is, can he get elected to the Senate again? And he was challenged both in the, in the primary from a credible op- opponent from the right, uh, and, a and a credible, uh, Democrat. So if you go back and look, you'll see that John McCain, uh, also has powerful survival instincts as a, as a, as an elected official. And he moved to the right. Uh, he knew he had to, he, made that made that compromise um i don't fault these guys for 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 doing this um but but he he made big moves um and then once he was nominated he moved back a little bit once he was elected he became a little bit of the old john mccain again but then remember he got elected in 2016 again so 
for for somebody in Arizona in a place where Flake turns out to be uh, too liberal, where John McCain has uh, generated mixed feelings for a long time, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, a in a primary uh, a Republican who wants to gain the nomination um, is going to be very careful, and she is going to find a way as much as she can to align herself with uh, with the president uh, and try not to sell her soul while doing it. Um, she's conservative. Uh, right. uh, Kelly Ward is even more conservative and farther out there. And, and uh, it's a mess in fight. Out there in batshit crazy land. Well, <laughs> is Joe Arvaya. Family, oh, family show, Justin. Oh, wow. I, I, I've never done I that try on the show. Be, I I'm uh, I I I'm not bothered by by the spicy language, um, but I am always careful to not overgeneralize about uh, uh, how to describe the followers of a politician. Uh, Hillary Clinton ran into a big problem when she did that, and it might have, you know, in that close race, might have made the difference. Uh, We're talking. First of all, I'm not running to, for office. First of all, I'm not running for office. Second of all, it's Joe Arpaio. I think that's actually a clinical determination for him. Well, no, I could just, be wrong. I'm just I saying, could be wrong. You know, well, well, when you characterize a whole area or a region or a state, um, it it's uh, uh, you know. I, oh no, no, I, I wasn't talking about the state of Arizona. I love the state of Arizona. I was talking about Joe Arpaio being bat as crazy. That's accurate. I, I got anyway. no, I got no complaint about that. I thought you made a more general statement about about that part of the country. Sorry. No, 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 absolutely yeah. not. I, I've got a lot of respect. Hopefully, and I believe that they will. All the indicators are that they will select uh, uh, the. Um, uh, yeah, they will. They they will select McSally as the Republican, and I think she'll kind of She's come around. All the polls. We'll see. But then again, we saw yeah. polls did for us in 20, 2016. Hey, um, let's also look at uh, Arizona. The governor, Governor Ducey, does not have an easy, easy choice. He's got to make as far as who does he select to fill out the remaining part of the term for. Uh, now uh, Senator John McCain, he's pretty much expected to get uh, renominated for the Republican ticket. But Sharmila, you know, what's funny is there's, there's some glimmer of hope in the DNC that uh, you could actually get somebody who might be elected as governor in Arizona and that fight's going between uh, David Garcia and uh, State Senator Steve Farley. Is there anything to that, or is that just whimsy? I mean, look, even the Hillary campaign thought that Arizona could be a stretch-winnable state, right? And, you know, it is, of course, hindsight being 2020, they would have done things differently. But at that time, they did divert resources into that state that, likely should have gone to, you know, Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania. But again, story for another day. But um, look, the demographics of Arizona are diversifying. It's becoming more purple. There are more Latinos, you know, 
in the state than ever before. There are more young people, you know, if you combine kind of this resistance, this anti-Trump movement, plus the changing demographics, I think there is certainly a case that, you know, Democrats could swing the state. It certainly wouldn't be a blowout, but I don't think that it might not be this cycle, but I think that the common, you know, sort of common wisdom that this is always going to be a red state is being challenged and it will be even more so in the future. I, um, I think it's whimsy, but I, I see your point on that one, Charmelet. I want to now shift gears and talk about Florida. Admiral Ken. Yep. Uh, what is happening down there in the gubernatorial race is just epic. Uh, you're taking a guy who was uh, former Republican leadership, who gave it all up, and all indications were he could have been he could have been a speaker at some time. Gave it all up to move back to Florida, to become Florida's agricultural commissioner. Does that for many terms, and then all he wants to do is run for governor. Is the leading Republican has it locked down until two and a half months ago when Donald Trump tweets Ron DeSantis, the representative out of the East Coast of Florida, who decided to run for. Uh, for the governor's mansion says that Ron DeSantis is the guy. And after that, just God awful. I don't know if, if, if everybody out there in radio land saw this God awful video, we will post it on backroom politics, Facebook page where he's got his daughter and his wife involved in this just horrible Trump, uh, I can't even think of the right word. It's, it's, it's disgusting, is all I can say. Mind meld? Mind meld? Yeah, I don't even know what, what we would call it. But what I'm getting at is he literally took Trump's tweet, his attachment to Trump, and literally leapfrogged over Adam Putnam to get what looks like now is inevitably the uh, Republican nomination for governor. Admiral Ken, do you see any way that Adam Putnam could possibly pull this off. Is there a possible uh, August surprise we could see? Um, you know, the thing is that, uh, you know, we, we are, we, we're, we are relatively new to, to the area. Um, and the, immediately as soon as I, I, I saw uh, the video about which you just, you just spoke, uh, I, you know, my, my mind went to, okay, I've got to see if there's, if there's, if there's a snowball's chance um, that that this is going to go differently than than how I think it's going to go, so one I think that um, Florida has been a purple state for a long time. Uh, that said, I'm I'm smack in the middle of the red portion of it, but uh, there's a significant blue portion south of here, not too far south of here. Um, you know, in in previous segments on the show and in previous shows, we've talked about the fact that there is a great deal of motivation um, uh, for for people to, uh, to to come out and vote thanks to, uh, to some of the, the antics of, of, uh, of President President Trump. I, I I think one it's 50/50 based on what I'm hearing and seeing down here. Really 50/50. Uh, I think yeah, there are probably as many people that were uh, energized by the. Um, the, 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 the Trump mind mail session is there were people that were just downright offended and just kind of scratched their head going, okay, 
this guy's badass crazy, so we're not going to vote for him. So I, I think, if nothing else, that that excitement factor that I think uh, the Democratic Party, the DNC, is hoping uh, is is at play uh, is is going to show up here. Um, there's 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 a, there's a, another race with Rick Scott and uh, Bill Nelson uh, that's that's getting a lot of attention too. Bill uh, Rick Rick Scott. Uh, has ra- was not favored to win this early on, but he has raised a tremendous amount of money, a tremendous amount of money. So that's another another horse race that I think is going to be primarily to de- be determined and, by the excitement factor of of, uh, of of the Florida voters. And that, and actually, I want to go to Sharmla on that one. Sharmla, there were several pieces over the weekend that came out and basically said that Bill Nelson has a real problem. Uh, whether he's not that into it, whether he's just not gotten into his groove, but they are there are a lot of Democrats, both in Florida and here in Washington, that are concerned that the long-serving Bill Nelson might have seen his last days as a senator. Is that generally a concern you're hearing in the Democratic Party? Yes, it's a concern I've been hearing, you know, whether it's the fact that Rick Scott has you know better equal if not better name recognition than than Senator Nelson. The fact that Senator Nelson's performance has been somewhat lackluster. The fact that you know Rick Scott has a large personal fortune that he can always use to bridge any fundraising gaps. But I think that at this point, if their fundraising isn't equal, I think that Governor Scott might actually have fundraised beyond Senator Nelson. So there's a lot of factors working against Senator Nelson right now. And I think to your point, a lot of Democrats are worried that this seat could slip through his hands. It might be a close race, but right now I think the polling has uh, Governor Scott slightly ahead, uh, which is not a great sign. Right. So and, and the other, the, especially the other, the especially other for a long-serving incumbent. Yeah, so Admiral Jen, go ahead. The other, the other factor is the algae factor. Um, the the politicians here have have jumped into one of the best finger-pointing exercises I have ever seen. Uh, the, the 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 party in power, the party parties in power, both Republican and Democrat, are being blamed for not getting control of the uh, of the algae that's leaching its way to the coast from uh, Lake Okeechobee, um, and uh, both both Republicans and Democrats are pointing the fingers at their at their um, competitors, saying it's their fault, it's their fault. Vote me in, I'll clean this mess up. That's awesome. That's awesome. As somebody who's dealt with the cleanup situation down there in Lake Okeechobee on a legislative level personally, that's just comical to me, but that's for another time. Um, Sharma, why I've got you a couple more questions about this, the Democratic races down there in Florida. Number one, Bill Nelson. Is Bill Nelson's worst hurdle Bill Nelson himself? Uh, no, I don't think so. I I. I mean, I don't think he's helping himself, but, you know, the fact that he's managed to get elected for three terms shows that he's not a completely inept politician. I think it is the fact that he is running against a popular governor who is the current governor who has a ton of name recognition and who has a somewhat inexhaustible war chest. Because, right, incumbents can always count on, for whatever else, incumbents can always count on the fact that they'll have a monetary advantage over their opponents. But that's not the case here. So I think that... I think his biggest, I think his biggest challenges are the name issue and, and the funding issue. Uh, we also want to look at the the Democrats looking at a a possible win 
depending on who gets the governor's nomination in Tallahassee for the mansion, uh, the the Democrats have put up quite a slate of possible contenders, but it looks like right now uh, Gwen Graham, who is the former congresswoman and the daughter of former Senator Bob Graham, uh, looks like to be the the person to beat in a in an eight way race for the Democratic nomination. Is, is Gwen Graham the future of the Democratic Party in Florida right now, Sharmila? I don't know uh, Gwen Graham personally, so I can't say. But I will say that, you know, the fact that she is the scion of a political dynasty is not necessarily something that's going to go in her favor. I think that, you know, the sort of old school way that we think about politics, about, you know, connections and money and influence and, you know, having insider access is going the way of the dodo. And so if Gwen Graham is to be successful in Florida. She needs to be charismatic. She needs to be more left-leaning and sort of embrace a little bit more of the kind of quote-unquote socialist agenda that's being, you know, touted within the party. And she needs to be able to really connect to voters who do not typically vote. Alan Moore, we've got two major races that Trump has basically uh, intervened with that uh, the the Arizona Senate race, which Trump intervened and pretty much guaranteed Jeff Flake a no-go back in Arizona, thus his retirement. And then we are also seeing the intervention of Trump in the Florida governor's race. Is this something that should concern not just Republicans, but the general electorate as a whole, that there's this much uh, rhetorical power being wielded by the White House and by the president? Well, it's, it's new. And stuff that's new uh, it makes it makes folks very uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, and then when you don't have a lot of trust in his own innate uh, understanding of parties and history and uh, the world of politics and where people come from and how they get to be in, in particular places and, and what motivates them. Um, uh, it, it, it is frightening to take a guy with that level of ignorance and put this kind of power uh, in, in, into his hands. He, uh, if you don't like him and you don't like that power, you hope that his endorsement is a kiss of death. Um, and if you love the guy, you hope that uh, that that his endorsement becomes uh, a blessing that can elevate you. We've seen both things happen already in this uh, uh, in this cycle, um, and uh, most Republicans who've been in, in this game for a while would wish he would just butt out until there is a candidate, and then weigh in, raise money, say nice things figure out where to go, where not to go. Um, and, uh, uh, but with, uh, with, with Trump, uh, we throw out all the old conventional um, understandings and, and rules and, and hope that uh, he doesn't uh, do damage and, and, <laughs> and that maybe every now and then he'll do something that will turn out to have been helpful. But right now everyone is, uh, doesn't they certainly don't want to cross him um, because they know he's got this 
following that will follow him blindly. Um, the, the, the question is whether there's an equal and opposite reaction if, uh, to, to the effect, if Trump's for him, I'm against him. And, and that phenomenon is, uh, is, I would say, on the rise. Sharma, is, is this a matter of the Republicans just have to get through this cycle, this midterm cycle, that, you know, for example, we're seeing a bunch of Republicans that are literally not just tying their, or hitching their horse to the Trump wagon. They are literally pulling the wagon themselves with their teeth. Is this a situation where the Republicans are going to have to swallow the bad medicine attached to Trump and then somehow find a way to move back to reality? Or have have they gone past the point of no return for returning back to reality in the general election? I mean, it's an interesting question because, to be honest, there's not that much bad medicine that comes with Trump, right? Like, 85% of his policies are typical Republican policies. There's some breaking with the orthodoxy, which is, you know, things like tariffs and his sort of incredibly extremist stance on immigration. But it's unclear whether these Republican elected officials, you know, don't actually believe those or whether they're actually on the Trump train in terms of in terms of those kind of more fringe issues. The bigger issue is his, you know, the president's behavior and sort of lack of dignity, but the voters are already shown that they don't care about that. So I don't know that this is as big of a problem for, you know, elected Republicans as, as you think it is, because I think in large part, politically, they are already pretty aligned with the president. And so if it's just a question of not calling him out on his bad behavior or kind of, then then that's a lot easier to do. And more real quickly, do you agree with Sharmila? Um, I think basically I do. Yeah. She, she, she uh, uh, I, I think there are a few more differences with the orthodoxy and some of his policies than, than she acknowledged, but she did touch uh, on it. The, the economy though is the big one. And Trump is in a position to lay claim to to a a jump forward in the slow economic growth that had been occurring for the last seven plus years, and it got a bump. It, it did it get a bump because of President Trump? And he he can claim it. Um, it's what it's what presidents do uh, when things are going well. <laughs> they. They claim credit when things are going bad. They get blamed, and he's been remarkably lucky. Um, and uh, the 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 trade stuff, the tariff stuff, that's crazy stuff. Um, it hasn't done massive damage yet. It's risky. Uh, there's some other foreign policy matters where he has he has been aggressively independent um, and different, uh, starting with North Korea. Iran, um, and and those things could explode uh, on uh, on his watch and change this calculus very abruptly. I hope it doesn't happen, um, but 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 it could. Um, the, uh, the 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 irony is the economy is doing well. He can lay claim to credit, and he does a crappy job of that. 
he gets sidetracked. He um, he and then he blame, he gets sidetracked, goes off in another direction, and then blames the press for not covering it, even as he is stepping all over it uh, as as uh, as a news item. Um, it it's uh, the the personal, the offensive. Um, that stuff, I think, takes a toll. Whether it affects voters or not is going to depend on whether the Democrats can get their stuff together and who they put up as, as candidates. When when push comes to shove in elections, it's all about who the candidates are and the self-interest of the people who are voting in a district, in a state, and so on. And we get caught up in these national trends and national numbers, and uh, and we miss things because we're not on the ground in, in local places where the politics really is local. Well, we're going to let that be the last word. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to touch on the new trade deal that the president was touting. Is it actually a trade deal? This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
is backroom politics. And we're back for the final few minutes of the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Admiral Ken Caradine, Charmel Achari, and Alan Moore. I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. Uh, last couple of minutes, I just want to talk about something that, uh, you know, because we don't want to be accused by the White House of only talking about negative stuff. Uh, the president announced yesterday in a very awkward way that apparently we got a trade deal with with the uh, Mexican government and Mexico. The big question on everybody's mind is, one, there's still not a lot of details about what's out there. The bottom line details that we've seen here at Backroom Politics include uh, a increase of the percentage of products manufactured in the U.S. and Mexico for a car to be not tariffed has been uh, raised to 74%. Uh, There is also now a wage requirement that uh, Alan Moore, our fact checker, check my math on this, uh, $15.20, I believe, is the salary requirement that a worker must make in order for a car not to be tariffed. Is that correct? So I think it's half, half of the content has to be produced by workers that earn at least sixteen dollars an hour, okay. which is okay. which is it's 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 odd because what what they're trying to do is push more. But both these things are trying to push more product into the United States, um, and um, and the and the Mexicans are feeling the pressure and are and are willing to go along. Um, it, it's it, it, the irony about all of this is we're in the weeds here, not insignificant weeds, but we're in the weeds. U.S. and Mexico, we're in a big rush because under U.S. law, any deal has to sit for 90 days in the Senate for it to. Hold hearings, reflect, learn, consider, and then and then vote, um, uh, approve or not. And um, on the Mexican side, the Mexican government is running out of time. Um, the current president they have a new is president to be coming in in January. He's actually yes, it, and 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 so we need that ninety-day clock to start running. Or we're going to have a different left-leaning president of Mexico who may very well say that deal, not my deal. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to sign it. So we are. We don't have the kind of details we would normally have for a trade deal. There's a lot of detail that that still has to follow, and <laughs> there's no Canada yet. So, ideally, U.S., Mexico, and Canada would agree on changes. Um, right, but uh, they're not they're they're not insignificant changes, but they're not world-beating changes, and they certainly don't rise to the rhetoric of fixing what the president has called I'm, one of the worst trade deals in the history of the world. Um, uh, but but because of this t- odd timing problem, we may or may not 
get everything in place that we'd like to have in place, A, and B, the, the Democrats uh, get to vote on this stuff, and they might or might not approve. They, they, the last thing the Democrats want to do is give the president anything that he can call a victory, um, right. even if it's more symbolic than substantive on the one hand. On the other hand, um, if they think that really is in the U.S. interest, and if U.S. labor unions get behind it, which there is some hope that they might, um, it creates an interesting dilemma. We're not done so, with this by any stretch. So the deal um, <laughs> that was, uh, that, that's been announced uh, lacks detail, has got n- numerous possible pitfalls in the path to, uh, to approval, um, it's uh, it's way more than nothing, but we're we're a long way short of having this thing done. Well, but here's my question, Sharmila. You've got a president that's doing a victory lap that literally sprinted to do a, a victory lap on a situation that, quite frankly, there's not really a victory yet. Uh, he claimed that this was the biggest trade deal in history, which we know it's not. Um. The, the big concern here is Canada, even Republicans in Congress are demanding that Trump include Canada in the discussions, and it seems to me that Trump can't be bothered. Is that a dangerous game Trump's playing? Of course it is, because he doesn't understand the stakes. But how right? important is Canada to this? I mean, Alan could answer that question far better than I could, but but right, I mean, Canada is an integral part of the entire NAFTA structure, but the point is that the president doesn't, can't understand multilateral relationships or kind of multilateral interactions. The president only sees things as one-on-one interactions and black and white. So the fact that he is, you know, not including Canada in any sort of NAFTA renegotiation or rejiggering indicates the fact that he doesn't understand, you know, any of the trade relationships between Mexico and Canada or how all three countries have an interconnected supply chain. So, I mean, this is not, again, I feel like this, my theme of today on the, sh- on the show is just this is ludicrous, but not surprising from this president. <laughs> uh, Alan, where do you want to take, how important is Canada to all this real quick? Well, Canada, so, <laughs> so Canada's, Ultimately, end of the day, really important. I I haven't looked at the details here well enough to know whether it's possible to have a bilateral new deal with Mexico that that down the road um, uh, Canada could sign on to or join. There's a mad, mad rush this week to try to get the Canadians on board, probably with a lot of promises of, hey, you don't want to miss the train uh, details to follow. Um, we've got a, we're racing against the clock. There's some good stuff in here for you, which I think is probably the case. Uh, that's the one thing that's a little murky. Um, if you, if you have to pay, if you have more North American content and if you have a higher wage average cost, that works for America and for Canada. It doesn't work so well for Mexico. Um, if it, if you're just looking at kind of a zero sum game, um, the question is whether the the Canadian pride, the prime minister's pride, has been so wounded here that they say, 
Yeah, you know, something this might actually be useful to us, curious as that is, uh, but we're damned if we're going to do that for President Trump. I don't know. And and what I, I also don't know, as I say, if you can do a two-step, meaning pound out details um, with with the Mexicans and the U.S., keep the Canadians now in close and figure out a way that, that they could be added without changing the content of this stuff. That's the problem. You, you have to give 90 days um, uh, before, before approval. There, there may also be some implementing legislation that would, that would, uh, that would be associated with it. So it, it's, it's an odd one where all of a sudden we're in a very, very big rush. Um, uh, it, the weird part is let's suppose that they're able to pull off a semi-miracle in terms of all the hurdles that are in front of them. How big a deal is it really? Not that big a deal. It's not yeah. small, but right. we're going to hear from the president. It's not that big. I took the it is worst, not as the president the claims. Worst the trade deal trade in the deal history in of the world, turned it into the best. And, and that's what we do. We do deals. And, and everyone, everyone is going to win here, especially America. And, and his 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 people will believe him, and people in the in the in the corporate world uh, and in the political world will shake their heads and say, you know, the great salesman uh, has done it again. But we'd rather have this deal than no deal. It it's uh, it's it's a it's a weird one in this case. By the way, before um, I, I I close the show today with a. With a little John McCain story, if you could just hold me a couple of minutes at the end, I think you guys will all enjoy it. Uh, okay, yeah, we had planned on that, Alan, but okay, since you re-asked for it, we can do that. <laughs> Admiral Ken, uh, the reality is Trump is putting this out as a big win for the U.S., but we're still not seeing details. Uh, is is there a point where we're going to see Congress start holding his? Feet to the fire as far as getting us details. Do the Democrats have to take back Congress to start seeing these details of these major trade yes. countries? Yes. 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 In a word, yes. Okay. Um, I, I, I say in a word, yes. Uh, I think if you're looking for profiles and courage, or uh, doing their duty uh, with regard to holding uh, anything that's going to require be required to hold uh, the president's feet to the fire. Um, you, you might as well look for Easter eggs in your backyard in the month of July. Uh, you, you're going to, you're just going to get hot and sweaty and nothing's going to come of the effort. Um, I think that, um, that's, what's going to have to happen. Um, uh, you know, that may be the, a purely pessimistic, uh, view of the world, but I didn't get here on my own. If I might, if I might on that. When it comes to trade deals, and this is the reason there's this odd problem, it's it's quite different. The the deal has to be approved by the Senate and to be made available 90 days before, uh, uh, ahead of any vote. There will be transparency here. There's probably going to be some murkiness. It's not assured that... Uh, that they will have the votes, but that's this whole race. The this is this is this is different from so much of what occurs uh, with this president and so on, 
they have got to make the deal available. It gets studied. It gets talked about. There will be, you know, some hearings. Um, but they're trying to they're trying to beat trying to beat the the new the new president of uh, of Mexico from coming in and mucking everything up. So right. we'll know. We'll know a lot about what this deal is because the Senate has to approve it. Right. All right. Well, we've got we've got a few minutes left in the show. Um, obviously, uh, we've had a lot to cover and we still got a lot to cover. But unfortunately, we just don't have the time every week to cover everything we need to. Uh, we do obviously want to close out with some final thoughts on uh, Senator John McCain, uh, who, again, if you're just joining us live, uh, Senator McCain uh, lost his battle with brain cancer over the weekend. Senator McCain was 81. Ironically, not a lot of people realize that uh, one of the people that survived Senator uh, McCain, Sharmila, is his 106-year-old mother, who is still in Roberta. Roberta, I mean, obviously this cannot be easy burying your son, but Roberta is still going strong, Charmola. She is. More power uh, to her. Yeah, no kidding. But obviously our 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 our, our thoughts go out to uh Senator McCain's wife Cindy, uh his brother, uh and and all the McCain children uh in this uh time of mourning. We've truly lost a great statesman and a true American patriot. But with that, uh, Alan, you, you want to close out with a uh, quick story uh, under two minutes, if we can, uh, about Senator McCain. Thank you. So in 1991, I had left the Senate. Uh, I was the president of a trade association, and one of my CEOs was involved in a new effort to have an annual acknowledgement of Medal of Honor winners. And there was going to be a dinner honoring a a bunch of Medal of Honor winners in Washington. And I decided to take this John McCain if he wanted to go, and he did. And so my late wife and I uh, and John McCain went to this dinner, and we were sitting at a table with with four Medal of Honor winners, and a couple had their wives there. And what was fascinating to me, as we heard the stories of these Medal of Honor winners and what they had done, uh, and John McCain listening in awe and saying to them, I am so amazed at what you did. And these Medal of Honor winners looking back at John McCain saying, are you kidding? What you did? Oh, my God, you were a prisoner for five and a half years. And McCain said, I'm flying a plane. I'm bombing Hanoi. I get shot down and then I have to survive. What you guys did was take an action, take an, take an initiative and put your life clearly uh, at, at great risk. And they had this debate. Who was the biggest hero? And I was fascinated as they went, as they kind of went back and forth and, and, and the Medal of Honor winners say, no, we, we were lucky. We, we did what our comrades would have done. We just happened to survive it. Um, we, there were many more heroic things that I saw that I didn't do, and these other guys did. Some survived, some didn't. Afterwards, I reflected on it. I thought, so 
so who was right? Who was the who was the bigger hero in this debate? And I decided they both were. They all were. And wow, that's my great, story. great, great story. That is a great story. Thank you, um, Admiral Ken. Uh, the fact that one last thought about John McCain: the fact that uh, he was the uh, uh, the son of a admiral, the grandson of an admiral. Throughout his career, even at the academy, obviously graduating in the bottom ten, not ten percent, the bottom ten of his class. John McCain never used that naval legacy as far as even attempting to have it elevate his career. Admiral Ken? Admiral Ken. I think we lost Admiral Ken. Uh, Wow, I was hoping to get some insight on that. But anyway, uh, that being said, uh, once around the clock, uh, in 30 seconds or less, what didn't we cover today? Sharmila Chari. Uh, the corruption of culture in the GOP that has consumed two of the president's closest House allies. We got a trial next week that we get to cover. Yay! Paul Manafort's second <laughs> of that ilk. No, it's, uh, it's po- postponed one week. Oh, that's right. Well, we'll talk about it next week. Then. It's Yay. pushed off. Yeah, the thing, uh, it, it, it's, the, it's the week of the 24th, I think. Um, the, uh, the, the issue that I worry about is the, uh, the late, latest developments in North Korea, where the North Koreans have basically called us out for, uh, for, not, being, uh, for, for not negotiating in good faith and saying that uh, they, they may well have to resume their, um, uh, their, their, their weapons and, and, and ballistic te- missile tests. And, Alan, Alan and, are, uh, you, all, are you – All again – Alan, are you truly surprised? Are you really, really surprised well, by this? Well, well, it's not that I'm. It's not, it's not so much that I'm surprised, but it's a development that 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 has occurred that put that it was kind of predictable, but you know it, it's now happening, and uh, uh, and the president got himself into a huge hole of exaggeration on uh, on how he had started this this unstoppable denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which we all knew was was not true and i don't know if he thought it was true or not but he's coming to realize that oh darn that was that wasn't true right well with that i'm gonna let that be the last word uh next week we should be back to full strength and we will also have uh audrey howerton i I forget what it's like to run the board and do the moderating at the same time but we've gotten spoiled with audrey so audrey safe travels across the country with that, on behalf of Admiral Ken, Sharma Chari, Alan Moore, I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern for the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Remember, you can download us as a podcast from our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can also uh, check out our Twitter feed, at Backroom Politics. And you can also check us out on Facebook at backroom or facebook.com slash backroom politics radio. Again, have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday.
This is Backroom Politics.